Well, good morning and welcome once again to worship at Christ Church of Oak Brook. My name is Sue Ann Camfield, and if I haven't had the opportunity to meet you personally yet, I am the women's director here at Christ Church, and I also serve on the wider teaching and preaching team. Um, I want to also just extend a warm welcome to all of those who are visiting or viewing us on live stream this morning. Thanks for taking Christ Church with you wherever you are, and I want to extend an especially warm welcome to our friends in our community at Downers Grove who are viewing this via video this morning. It is such a privilege to be with all of you and to be part of such an amazing community of believers. Well, this morning, um, we are in our second week of what we are calling the Hidden Figures Sermon Series, and that's what Chad was alluding to with the Coffee Sleeve Project. And what we are doing is we're taking the opportunity to highlight some of the great female leaders in Scripture and allowing us to learn about their stories in a way that reminds us that none of our stories are hidden to God. And so this morning, we are going to take a look at um, our second hidden figure of the series. We're going to look at Queen Esther. But before we do that, I would invite you just to take a moment and just bow your heads and let's settle in as we prepare to hear God's word together. Lord, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come before you this morning. We ask that as we sit in this place and worship you, Lord, that whatever you would have for us this morning, that we would be open to receiving. Lord, because of who you are and because of your word, I pray that you would change us and make us more like you. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. Well, over the last couple of decades, there has been a writing prompt that has become very popular among teachers and professors and aspiring writers that's simply called your six-word story. Now, this may be urban legend, it could be fact, we are not sure, but as the story goes, Many decades ago, Ernest Hemingway sat at a lunch table with some of his friends, and he made a bet with them. And he bet them $10 that he could write a complete story in six words, a complete novel in six words. And so they took the bet. I'm sure they thought he couldn't do it. And he scribbled words on a napkin, and he threw it down in front of the table. And to their utter amazement, he had done what he said he would do. And he wrote these words down on the napkin, and he said, for sale, baby shoes never worn. Now, I don't know if that is a new true story or not, but if you go online and you search the internet, you can find all kinds of six-word stories. And I wanted to share a few of just my favorite ones that I came across with you this morning. And the first one says this, strangers, friends, best friends, lovers, strangers. How many of us have had that six-word story at some point in our life? Or how about this one? You almost convinced me I mattered. Like a phoenix, I'll be reborn. I love that one. Or how about this, a prayer? I talk to God about you. Or this one is one of my favorites. My Fitbit's trying to kill me. <laughs> Some of you are going to say amen to that one. 
I um, have never written my own six-word story, but I was walking around the Oak Brook Mall not long ago and found this, which is a seven-word story that's become my own version of it that I keep on my desk. And it says this, I'm pretty sure I have no idea. I hope someone is sitting next to Pastor Eric at Downers Grove right now because he's laughing hard and someone needs to nudge him during that one. But I guess, I, I, here's my point of this. So if I were to ask you what you knew about the story of Esther, I'm sure that most of you could share her six-word story. It goes like this, for such a time as this. It's probably one of the most quoted, most famous lines of scripture uh, throughout the whole Bible, but I, get, I would bet that if I asked you to tell me a little bit more about her story, tell me a little more of the context, who said that? What was such a time as this? I bet most of us and most church-going people in America would say, you know what? I don't really know. I don't really know more of her story because even though Esther has a whole book of the Bible devoted to her, we just know a piece of it. We know her six words. But I'm here to tell you today that if we miss out and we don't know the rest of Esther's story, we are missing out on one of the greatest pieces of God's story as he works in his lives of his people from Genesis to Revelation and throughout the history of his people which is also our story. And so I'm excited to bring it into light and to share it with you this morning. We are actually gonna do a crash course on Esther. We are gonna move pretty quickly. I'm gonna share a lot of information, but hopefully by the end of their time, you're gonna see why it's so important to understand the context of the story and why Esther's story is so important. So two fun facts about the book of Esther that I want to share first. One, it's one of only two books of the Bible that's named after a woman. Do you know the other book? Ruth, that's right. All right, we're a smart good group. You're going to do good in class today. Ruth, the two Old Testament books known, uh, named after women. The other fun fact about the book of Esther is it's the only book besides Song of Solomon where God's name is not mentioned at all throughout the whole book. And I want you to remember that because we're going to circle back to that as we go on. So the first thing that's important for us to know, just like if we're getting into any story, is we need to know the context in which it takes place. So Esther is set in the kingdom of Persia, which at the time of the story is the largest empire in the whole world. It consists of about 127 provinces, which doesn't mean much to us today, but if you take the state of California and you uh, times it by 14 in size, if that's even a sentence, you times it by 14 in size, that's going to give you the idea of the size of the kingdom of Persia at this time. And in charge of this kingdom is the first of five characters that I want to introduce to you this morning is King Xerxes. Now, some of your Bibles may also call him King Azuerez, and that's because Xerxes was his Greek name or his Persian name, and that's what history would come to know him as, but the Hebrew name and what the Jewish people knew him by was Azuerez. And because he was over the largest empire at the time, it meant he was the most powerful man in the world at the time. And the thing we want to know about King Xerxes is we do not like him very much. He is impulsive. 
he's licentious, he is easily manipulated, and he is extremely arrogant. In fact, decades later, we see that archaeologists pull up inscriptions from this time, and they believe that Xerxes actually inscribed these by himself or for himself, and they said things like, king, the king of all kings, and the king of the world. He thought he was on top of the world. And so that is our first character. Our second character is Haman. Now, if we don't like Xerxes, we really do not like Haman. He is the king's advisor, and we see throughout the story that he actually becomes second in command, which makes him the second most powerful man in the world at this time. And we see that he is as slimy and as power-hungry as they come. And he's constantly in the ear of Xerxes, doing anything that he can to increase his own status and advance his own agenda. And he will do it to the detriment of everyone around him. Now, the most important thing to know about Haman that sets up the context for our story is that he is a sworn enemy of the Jews. He is a descendant of the Amalekites, and there is this friction between the Amalekites and the Jewish people all throughout the history. And so he hates the Jewish people because that's what he knows, and that's the family he has been born into. So about 100 years before Esther takes place, the um, kingdom of Israel is split into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom, also known as Judah, which was one of the 12 tribes of Israel and also the line that Jesus comes from, the southern kingdom gets conquered by a Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar. All right, and when this happens, Nebuchadnezzar takes over Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah. He destroys the temple, which is the life and the breath of the people of God at that time, and the Jewish people are left with no home. Some of them are taken into captivity, but over time, they are dispersed, and we see that this remnant of people is left 100 years later in the kingdom of Persia. Now, there's a lot more to this story that we're not going to cover, but what I want you to remember is that these Jews now are living in the kingdom of Persia, and Haman hates that they're there. Our third character that I want to introduce you to, we heard a little bit about already in the scripture reading, is Queen Vashti. Now, Queen Vashti is the first queen of Persia that we are going to hear about this morning, and she is the wife of King Xerxes. Now, at the beginning of Esther, we see that Xerxes throws a six-month-long banquet. It is true to his character. He wants to show everybody in the world how much money he has, how much wealth he has, and how great he is. So he throws this banquet that is excessive in every fleshly way you can imagine. And at the end of the banquet, he opens the gates to the kingdom and he invites everybody in and he has a meal with just the men. And at the same time, Vashti is having a meal with the women of the kingdom. And the men are having a good time. Xerxes is drinking a lot of wine. And at the height of his merriment, he thinks it's a good idea to invite Vashti into this circle of men and to parade her beauty, because she was a very beautiful woman, parade before the men. 
And Vashti, in this moment of self-respect and of dignity, defies a direct order from the king. The king wasn't simply inviting her. It was law that she needed to listen. And she had enough respect for herself and the women that she was with that she said, you know what? I'm not having it. I'm not going to go parade myself before a bunch of men and people that don't see my worth and my value in the eyes of God, and I am not going to do that. And so Xerxes is humiliated, he's outraged, and he and his advisors decide that they need to make an example of Queen Vashti and ban her from the kingdom. And so this sets up our story for what's going to happen next because Xerxes is left now without a queen. And actually, four years go by, and he goes without a, a queen, and he actually um, suffers quite a few military defeats, and then we see that he becomes a little lonely, a little depressed. He starts to miss, miss poor old Vashti, and his advisors don't know what to do, and they want to cheer him up, and so they say, you know what, let's go out to all the provinces, and let's find some beautiful young virgins and invite them to the kingdom, and let's let the king choose one of them to be queen. And so that is exactly what they do. They go out and find about 400 young virgins, and when I say young and beautiful virgins, I mean teenagers, somewhere between the age of about 14 and 19 years old, and they bring them to the kingdom where these women now will undergo a year long of beauty treatments, and they will be trained in the art of seduction. And at the end of that year, they will be paraded before the king, and the king will find out and choose who pleases him most, and then he will make her his wife. Now, I have to pause and just say one thing right here as we talk about the context of this story, because as you read commentaries maybe or hear stories about Esther, a lot of times people liken it to an ancient beauty pageant. If you're living today in 2019, you might think of it as an episode of The Bachelor, where all of these young women are coming and they're vying for the attention of the man and it's all fun and games. And what I want us to remember is, especially as we talk about hidden figures in the scripture, is that these young women were forcibly removed from their homes and their families and they were being held captive for the pleasure of a man under which they had no control. The virgins who came who were not chosen, they didn't get to go home and go back to their families. They would stay at the palace and that would be their life from now on and they would be subject to the king forever. Now as we read the scripture, if we are good Bible students, we have to be careful not to take our 21st century culture and overlay it completely on the scripture at a time that was completely different of ours. But if something happened like this today, and it does happen today, we would call this modern day slavery. We would call it human trafficking. And so when you hear the words ancient beauty pageant, I wanna make sure that you know the context of what we are talking about so that we can be true to the scripture and know that this is where we meet Esther and her cousin Mordecai. Now, 
during this time, Esther and Mordecai were Jewish exiles. Remember that story, Jewish, Jewish exiles, and they're all living in Persia. Mordecai is an old man because he was a child when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah, and he experienced that. So he was um, a first-generation immigrant, basically, in the land of Persia. And we see that Esther is an orphan. Her mother and father died, and so Mordecai takes her in as his, own, as his own, and we see the scripture tells us he loves her like a daughter. Now, the first thing that we learn about Esther, her Hebrew name being Hadassah, the first thing we learn about her besides her relationship with Mordecai is that she's very beautiful. The scripture tells us she's beautiful in form, and she was lovely to look at which means she is the kind of woman that women love to hate and men love to love, right? She has a beautiful face and she has a beautiful figure. And I don't know about you ladies, but sometimes I think, you know what, God, you get to give them one or the other. You don't get to give them both, right? It's just not fair to the rest of us. But the thing about Esther is she was so much more than her beauty. She was a woman of influence because we see that she finds favor with everyone around her, man, woman, young, old, the king to her servants. She is a woman that is filled with grace and charm and she's smart and she's quick-witted, and she's passionate, and she is courageous, and she's teachable, and she's kind, and she respects everyone around her, and because of that, she finds favor wherever she goes. And so it should come as no surprise to us then when Xerxes sends out his men to find the most beautiful virgins in the land that Esther is among them. And she gets invited to the palace, and she goes through the beauty treatments, and because she wins favor with people, she's quickly advanced to the best place in the harem. She has a competitive advantage over the other women now. Now, during this year, while Esther is gone, Mordecai has no contact with her. Okay, they don't have cell phones, they, they can't text each other, there's no Snapchat, so there's no way that he can be in contact with her. She is completely isolated from the rest of the culture inside the harem. Now we see that Mordecai loves Esther like a daughter. And I don't know about you, but if one of my kids was taken away from me and I had no contact with them, I would be a little bit concerned. And we see that's exactly how Mordecai reacts. He night and day paces outside of the king's gate. And he waits for any news that he can get of Esther. And I can't help but imagine if he's not replaying the last conversation that he had with Esther that might have gone something like, what would have gone on between me and one of my children had they left, I would have said, you know what, be, be safe and be strong. And don't forget who you are and don't forget what I taught you. But Mordecai adds something else because he says, and Esther no matter what you do, don't forget. Don't you dare tell them that you're Jewish. Because Esther, there's men like Haman on the other side of that gate. And so we see this is the posture of Mordecai. And so finally at the end of the year, he gets word just like everybody else does that Esther actually wins, wins the queen. 
The scripture tells us the king loved Esther more than all of the other women, and she won grace and favor in his sight. And so Esther becomes queen, and things are going along maybe like normal for any of us, until one day Mordecai is doing his job outside of the palace gates, and Haman comes by with his men. Now by law, when the king's advisors come by, especially someone like Haman, you are to bow down before them. And Mordecai just flat out refuses to bow down. And it happens a couple times and he gets pressed by the king's men and they wanna know why he's doing this and finally, Mordecai shares his secret. He says, well, I won't bow down because I bow down before no man. I bow down only before the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I won't bow down to Haman because I'm Jewish. And of course, Haman is outraged. And because we know that Haman has been in a system of generational racism against the Jews, Haman is not only outraged with Mordecai, but he's outraged with all of the Jewish people throughout the kingdom. And so he goes to the king and he plans his revenge and he convinces the king that it is a good idea to issue an edict that will result in the genocide of all the Jewish people. And Xerxes agrees and they pull out their finest scotch from the bottom of their shelf and they toast to celebrate And when news travels to all the Jewish people, the Jewish people come out of their homes and they weep and they wail and they mourn. And perhaps no one mourns more loudly or more publicly than Mordecai. He does what is common to do in that day when people are mourning. He puts on a sackcloth and he covers himself with ashes and he goes to the public gate, to the public square and he throws himself on the ground and he weeps and wails and mourns. But here's the thing we need to know, Mordecai is just smart too, all right? He raised a smart daughter and he is a smart guy because he has a plan. He's not just doing this because he's mourning, he's doing this because he knows he needs to get the attention of the one person in the kingdom who finds favor with everyone she meets. And his plan works. Because word gets back to Esther that Mordecai is basically making a complete spectacle of himself. And she does something very practical. For my practical and sensible friends in the room, you'll appreciate this. She sends him some clothes. And she says, tell, go tell Mordecai to get dressed. Get up off the ground, pull himself together, and put some clothes on. Well, Mordecai refuses. And so this begins a back and forth conversation between Mordecai and Esther via um, a messenger between the two of them. And Mordecai tells Esther everything that's happened. He gives her a copy of the edict in which the people are sentenced to death. And then at some point, he does something that I would imagine as a parent or a guardian pained him very deeply because he knows Esther is the only hope for her people. And he takes a deep breath, and he knows exactly the danger that he's asking her to put herself in, and he says this, Esther, you need to go to the king, and you need to beg and plead for mercy on behalf of your people. Remember, no one knows she's Jewish. Mordecai just outs her to her servant on behalf of your people. That thing I told you about being safe, 
those rules don't apply anymore. I'm asking you to do this. And Esther pushes back as we can understand. And she says, Mordecai, you don't understand. The king has not summoned me to his presence for 30 days. All right, he's been entertaining himself with other women. I can't just go to him unannounced. And in fact, if you go to the king's court and into the king's presence uninvited, it's punishable by death. And Mordecai responds back and he says, Esther, I know. And then I love this moment because it reminds me of those coffee sleeves that we talked about, that moment when someone speaks right into your life very boldly because they believe in you and they love you and they are willing to take the risk. And Mordecai says this, and this is the context for our six-word story today. He says, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. He says, Esther, here's the deal. You're going to die either way. You can go to the king uninvited and take your chances, or you can go down with the rest of us, but God is not going to save you from this. And secondly, he says, you know what else? Esther, if you don't do this, the God that I believe in, the God that made that covenant with his people throughout time and the promises he made, he's still going to find a way to accomplish those because God is God and he does what he says he's going to do. And so guess what, Esther? God is going to prevail. He says, but you know what, Esther? What if, who knows, what if God has put you Hadassah, what if he has put you in this exact place, in this exact time, and he's given you all your wounds and your grief of losing your parents and your story and your sin, and he's given you your beauty and your influence and your favor? What if he has given you all of this and he's put you in this exact place at this exact time to do the exact thing he has called you and only you to do. Esther takes in those words, and we don't know exactly what happens inside of Esther, but we know that she has a choice to make. And she has to choose if she's going to believe two things. First of all, she has to believe if she is going to believe Mordecai when he says who he believes her to be. This man that has loved her and that has raised her and that sees every good thing in her, who believes that she is uniquely and gifted, uniquely gifted and equipped to do this task, is she going to believe that person that is speaking into her life in this moment? And then she has to decide something else. She has to decide if she is going to believe that God is really who he says he is. Is her God good? Is he faithful? Does he actually do what he says he is going to do? Is he alone the author of her story? Is he worthy of her trust? And whatever goes through Esther, we don't know, but we see that Esther makes a decision. 
And something rises up in Esther and she decides that she is gonna say yes to both of those questions. She is gonna say yes, I believe myself to be exactly who God created me to be and I believe that God is exactly who he says he is. And we see this because it comes back in her answer to Mordecai in this beautiful five word story, if you will. She says, then I will go to the king And though it is against the law, she knows the risk. She says, and if I perish, I perish. In other words, I'm not going to miss out on this moment, however terrified or ill-equipped I may feel or I may actually be, I'm not going to miss out on the opportunity to use my influence and my story to participate in the much bigger story that God has called me to. You ever had a moment like this? You ever had a moment where it feels like there are two doors in front of you and you have a choice to make? You don't know what lies on the other side of either door. You are not exactly sure how you're even going to walk through it. There are unknowns and fears and doubts and uncertainty, but you know you have to make a choice. And door number one, says, you know what, I'm gonna walk through this door because I'm gonna choose to listen to the people who have spoken into my life and the truth they have spoken over me. And I'm gonna choose to believe that I am who God created me to be and he's called me to do the things he's called me to do. And so I know it's uncertain and I don't know what's on the other side, but I'm gonna choose to walk through it because I believe those two things. That's door number one. And then door number two is another choice. It's as uncertain and unclear and scary, but instead of listening to the truth of who God's created and called us to be, we listen to that other narrative that goes through our mind and we listen to the doubts and insecurities and all our not enoughness and we say, you know what, this isn't practical and I don't know and I don't think it's me and we choose not to go through the door. And I wonder when we do that, if we choose not to go through that second door, the thing is, God could have someone else do it. His kingdom purposes are gonna go on no matter what. But here's the deal, what if, just what if, who knows, what if God put you in your exact place, in your exact time, and gave you your exact story to go to the place he's called you to do and walk through door number one. Friends, my prayer for us today is I pray that our six word story is not I chose door number two. Friends, I pray that we could follow in the footsteps of Queen Esther and have the courage to say, God, you are worthy of my trust. God, even though sometimes you feel far away and your name even feels like it's hidden from my story like it was in the book of Esther, I'm going to choose to believe that you are at work. And I'm going to choose to believe that you are a God that sees me and knows me and loves me and has called me for such a time as this. Let's pray. Lord, I pray as we sit in this room together that you would be speaking to us. 
Lord, that Esther's story would be speaking to us because all of us have a place that you've called us to be. Lord, all of us have a person that you are calling us to be. Lord, you are shaping us and growing us. And I just pray that we may trust who you are and who you say we are, Lord, and that we, when given the opportunity, may boldly step in to those places you call us to because you are a God that is worthy of all our trust. May it be true of us today. In Jesus' name, we do pray. Amen. Well, friends, just as God invited Esther to participate in his kingdom, so today he invites us to participate in his kingdom by this table that he set before us. He invites all of those who call upon his name, who believe that he is the one true God, that he is the only way for our salvation, that when we turn to him and we repent of our sins, we receive forgiveness, and that we walk in a life obedience of obedience to him. That is what this table is all about, and that is what God is inviting us today to as individuals and as a community who are connected to him and are connected to one another. And so that's what we are going to do today as we continue our worship. We are going to simply take communion today in remembrance for the sacrifice that he made for each and every one of us. I'm going to invite the elders to come forward and to take their places as I give a few instructions on how we are going to do this. It's only the second time we've taken communion in this space, and so we're still figuring a few things out, and so if you bump into somebody or, um, you know, get confused along the way, that's okay. We will figure it out together. And so here's what we're going to do. We um, are actually going to exit to the right. And so everybody squeeze your right hand or shake your right hand if you're not sure which way that is. You got it? Okay. So we're going to go exit to the right. You're going to go to the server that is closest to you. And so for those of us who are in the top, you may come down the stairs or go up to the top where there are different people. It's up to you which way you want to go. But after we do that, we will go back in, walk all the way around the seats and come back in from the left side to take our seats. If you have mobility challenges and you can't get up to participate in communion and you need someone to come to you, we are more than happy to do that. And so just stay in your seat. And when everyone has been served, catch the eye of an usher or raise your hand and they will come directly to you to serve communion. The last thing I want you to know is that you do not have to be a member of Christ Church in order to participate in communion with us. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are welcome to the table. And if you have not made that decision and you need to have a little bit more time with God, then we'd invite you just to stay in your seat and have that time of communion with God in whatever way you choose. But as a body and as a community, we are gonna reflect and celebrate and remember Christ's sacrifice for us together. So now I'd like to just invite you to bow your heads and um, Chad is going to lead us in a word of prayer. Let's pray. God, with grateful hearts, we come to you today aware of our brokenness and yet hopeful for the eternal life and the freedom that you offer. 
God, we give you thanks for Jesus, our Lord, who came as the light of the world to lead us on our journey of faith. God, in this life, you've revealed your glory and the full potential for this community. And you've opened the way of complete forgiveness for all of us who trust in your sacrifice. In raising Jesus from the dead, you provided the promise that his disciples will join him again one day. And so because of that, Lord, send your spirit upon us that the sharing of this bread that we break and this cup that we bless may be for us the communion of the body and blood of Christ. Let it be that by joining together in worship, we may experience unity of the faith and grow up into the full character of Christ. And may we be your disciples for the sake of this world. And as this grain has been gathered from many fields into one loaf, and these grapes from many hills into one cup, may it be that your whole church may soon be gathered from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. Through Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, we pray. Amen.